Scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It might surprise you to think about this. How many, how many hymns, how many songs does the average congregation know? How many songs in the songbook would we be familiar with if we had songbooks these days? You know, there's something like 970, 1,000, something like that songbook, songs in our songbook. The average congregation of God's people knows well about 150 to 200 of those. About 150 to 200 songs. And out of those 150 to 200 songs, when you stop and think about the songs that we really know well, that if the song leader just stepped into the pulpit, that everybody, for the most part, would chime right in. We would know without having to be taught or without having to stop and think about how the melody goes. We would know those songs. Out of all of those, what if some of the different inanimate objects of the Bible were able to sing those songs? For example, you remember Moses' rod, Moses' staff that God told him to take when he went to Pharaoh? And it was the same staff that Moses stretched out over the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted so that the Israelites could part and cross through on dry land? What if Moses' staff could sing? What kinds of songs would Moses' staff sing? How about the battle belongs to the Lord? Or how about our God is an awesome God? What about David's staff? He was a shepherd before he was a king. And David's staff had guided him and guided those sheep that he was in charge of for many, many miles and many, many days and many dangers. What if David's staff could sing, he is able to deliver me, or he leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. If David's staff could sing, maybe a song like that, for your contemplation in mind this morning, what if the cross could sing? There are some songs that I believe if the cross, an inanimate object, an object of torture, an object of execution, an object that even though we have taken and because of its connotations, we've made it into a religious symbol in our society. In ancient society, it was nothing but a symbol of disgrace, a symbol of shame, a symbol of execution. What if the cross could sing? What songs might we hear the cross singing? I suggest three this morning for your contemplation and mine. In the first place, if the cross upon which Jesus Christ could sing, it might sing this, holy, holy, holy. We have that song in our book, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And we need to stop and think about what that word holy means because the cross deals with the holiness of God. Holiness is a two-sided coin. Holiness has a positive and a negative. 
Positively, it has to do with passion for what's right, passion for God and His will. Negatively, it has to do with purity, separation from that which is wicked, that which is sinful. And so when we talk about holiness, holiness has to do with separation, purity, freedom from defilement. But on the other hand, it has to do with a passion for what honors and glorifies God. That's what holiness is all about. And there was never a better display of holiness than the cross of Jesus Christ. Devotion to what God wanted, not my will but yours be done, Matthew 26 verse 39, combined with a freedom, a separation from sin. In him there was no sin, no defilement, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 and 22. Jesus exemplifies the holiness of God on the cross. When you think about that word holy, throughout the Old and New Testament, it is the only attribute of God that's ever three-peated. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. God is love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The Bible never says that God is grace, 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 but he is a God who is gracious. But the Bible does say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Both of those passages threepeat the word holy when talking about God. And the idea, again, has to do with God is completely and utterly devoted to his own glory because there's nothing better than him. There's no one like him. And God is completely and utterly separate from sin. Sin is the opposite of everything that God is all about. And so when you ask the question, all right, well, well, what's the problem? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why does holiness demand that? It has to do with the nature of sin itself. Sin does some things that cannot be changed. For example, sin itself cannot be undone. Once you and I have committed a sin, you can't go back in time and erase that. You can't go back and undo that. Once sin is part of my life and yours... That sin is a permanent stain. The Bible speaks about Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, that Esau, even though he sought after his birthright with repentance and with tears, it could not be regained. And when we sin, that's what happens. It can't be undone. Not only that, but sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. There is a chasm, there's a rift between you and me and God because of sin. It separates, it divides people. Habakkuk said of God, you are of too pure eyes to look upon wickedness. God can't have anything to do with me when there's sin in my life unless he makes a way to uphold his holiness and to redeem me in my sinfulness. The cross is what does that. Sin brings spiritual death. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says he has made us alive who were previously dead in our sins and our trespasses. Spiritual death. And when someone sins, the universal law of sin goes like this. When someone sins, someone must die to pay for that sin. When somebody sins, somebody has to die. 
In Genesis 2, verse 17, God told Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden that you want to, but don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Payment must be made. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And so, brothers and sisters and friends, sin is the problem. It is the fundamental problem that humanity faces. And God is a holy God. He is utterly and infinitely separate from sin. So what has God done? The Bible teaches that God wants everybody to be saved. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, he's not slack as some count slackness. He hasn't forgotten his promise to come again. But he is patient toward us, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's God waiting on? Why hasn't he returned? 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says he still wants us to be saved. He still wants more people to have an opportunity to come to know him. That's his desire. That's his wish. God who wants all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. God wants all men to be saved, but the other problem that the cross deals with is the fact that God is just. God can't just wave away sin with a sweep of his hand. Sin demands a penalty. It can't be undone. You can't avoid it. It's a stain that just cannot come out any other way except through the blood of Jesus. And God is just. He always does the right thing. He always does the just thing. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, Abraham asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? It's a rhetorical question that needs to be answered. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Absolutely, because he's just. Every transgression receives a just recompense of reward, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 teaches. That is to say, that God knows everything that is wrong in the world. He has a perfect recollection of every sin that's ever been committed. And God will deal justly and fairly with that sin. He's not going to take a few people over here and, and treat them differently or somehow overlook what they've done and they get a privilege and these other people over here don't. That's not the way it works. God is gonna treat everybody with perfect justice and that's a problem because everybody sins, Romans 3 verse 23. And so the Bible teaches that the cross is how God can be both just, that is fair, and at the same time the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter three, verses 24 through 26. Read that passage. The Bible is telling us that what the cross does is it upholds the holiness of God. The idea that God is separate from sin, the idea that God is utterly devoted to his own glory, that he's gonna be just and fair in the way he treats us, and yet he could still save us from our sin. Only the cross could do that, there was no other way. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the cross is the ultimate expression of that song. You never see the holiness quite the same until you look at the cross, the holiness of God. If the cross could sing, 
if it could express in words what Jesus was doing for us, the holiness of God might be the very first thing that we heard. But secondly, as you ask the question, what might the cross sing? There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. We need to believe that as the people of God like never before. There is power in what the blood of Jesus accomplished for us. People look at their lives and they look at the mess that they've made. All of us do. And sometimes people try to make up for that. They say, I know I haven't been what God would want me to be. I know that I haven't lived according to the standard of righteousness and holiness that I can find in God's Word. And people might try to pay for their sin. They might try to make that up to God somehow. There are three primary ways in history that people have tried to do this. If you've got sin in your life, what do you do about it? Some people try to pay their sin debt by morality. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be kind to people. I'm going to be helpful. And yes, there's all that stuff in my past, and I can't deny that, and I can't change that, and I can't undo that. And yes, the Bible says I'm dead in my sin and trespasses, but I'm going to be a good person today. And by being good, I'm hoping that God will overlook my past. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that God is just. He's got to deal with sin. He's got to treat it somehow. Morality alone can't save us. In Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus foresaw a time when people on the day of judgment would say, Lord, didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we do good things? And we did it all in your name. And he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. If we're relying on our morality to save us. We're putting our trust in the wrong place. Some people try to make up for their sin, not by morality, but by heredity. My grandfather was an elder. My dad was a preacher, someone might say. My mother was a saint. She was the godliest woman, they might say. My brothers and my sisters, they have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And because I belong to that family, because I belong to that clan or that tribe or that group of people, I'm related to them by blood, that must mean that I'm okay too. That was how the ancient Jews started to feel. We're part of the covenant. Because of the fact that we were born Jewish, we are part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And therefore, by heredity, we are saved. In Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says that he has a burden for his Jewish brethren. He wants them to be saved, but he wants them to also understand that they can't be saved. They can't find salvation unless they find it in Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law. He is the one who brings true righteousness to people. It's not by heredity. It's by being related to Jesus Christ through the new birth. Some people try to pay for their sin by learning. 
If I could just learn enough of the Bible, if I could just memorize enough of it, and maybe I'll even live according to it, if I can just know the Bible inside out, then I can find cleansing from my sin. In Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, the Bible describes a man named Apollos. And the Bible says that Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures, that he knew the Bible backwards and forwards, if you want to say it in our lingo. Apollos knew what he was talking about. If you ask him about what the Bible teaches on a given subject, Apollos knew, but he was still lost. And a sweet Christian couple named Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and teach him the way of God more perfectly because all the learning in the world will not save us if we refuse to put our faith in Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's power in the blood. What does the blood of Jesus do? The Bible explains how the blood of Jesus cleanses us in so many different terms that it's really worthy of us just taking a moment to stop and think about it. It says in Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13, that it's the blood of Jesus that reconciles us to each other and to God. We share the same blood. If we've been washed in the blood, if we've been baptized for the remission of our sins, we share the same blood. We are reconciled into one family, the Bible teaches, Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Not only does the blood of Jesus reconcile us, but it redeems us, the Bible says. We were lost, we were slaves to sin, and the blood of Jesus is the purchase price that has bought us back. We're not redeemed with silver and gold, precious things like that. That's the precious blood of Jesus that purchases us. It's currency, spiritual currency, that purchases us from our sin. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. What does the blood of Jesus do? It remits our sin. Remits, rolls back, makes it look like that sin was never present in my life to begin with. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus at the Last Supper said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Your sins are remitted by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus washes us. There was a stain on our soul that could not be removed, but the blood of Jesus is the agent that can remove it. Revelation 1 verse 5, it washes us. There's power in that blood. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he was making a way for us to be sanctified. You know what the word sanctify means? It means to be made holy. He separates us from our sin, and He sets us apart and devotes us as a person who will now seek the glory of God in all of our ways, in all of our attitudes, in all of our words. That's what holiness is. Hebrews 13, verse 12, He shed His own blood for our sanctification. What does the blood of Jesus do? It justifies us. It makes us as if we had never sinned in the first place justified, not guilty. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Brothers and sisters and friends, the Bible teaches that there is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can take away our sin. And sometimes people will ask the question, well, well, don't you teach that baptism is essential? Don't you teach that water baptism is the point at which someone is saved? And the answer is, that's what the Bible teaches, yes. I want to make a distinction. 
What can wash away my sin? W-H-A-T. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But the distinction comes here. When does the blood of Jesus wash away my sin? W-H-E-N. When? And the answer to when is the point at which we are baptized. In Acts 22, verse 16, the Scripture says, Why do you tarry? Arise, Paul, and be baptized, washing away your sin, calling on the name of the Lord. What washed away Paul's sin in Acts 22, verse 16? It was the blood of Jesus. The rest of the Bible teaches that. Well, when was his sin washed away? His sin was washed away when he was baptized. That distinction needs to be kept clear in our minds. There's power in the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus contacts my life at the point of my baptism. Acts 22, verse 16. The blood of Jesus is powerful, and the cross would be singing that song. If the cross could sing to us, what else would it sing? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. You know, there are a lot of songs that are appropriate before the Lord's Supper. Songs like in the Garden of Gethsemane and songs that deal with the suffering of Christ. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. I'm also convinced that Jesus loves me is especially appropriate before the Lord's Supper. Because there was never an expression of love quite like the cross. Think about all that the Bible says about the motivation that led to the cross. Why did God send his son for us? Why did that happen in the first place? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What motivated God to give his son? It was the degree and the greatness of his love for us. The Bible says in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this. That, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. That's Jesus speaking. No greater love, no greater expression of love than someone who would lay down his life for others. Romans 5 verse 8, the passage that was read just a few moments ago. God manifests, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does the cross show us? It shows us that God loves us. He cares for you. Jesus loves you. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the love of Christ compels us, for we judge thus, if one died for many, then all died. The love of Christ, the fact that he died for us, that motivates and animates everything else that we do with our lives. The love of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Bible speaks of the great love of God with which he loved us, how God cares for us, and he doesn't want us to be lost. And Jesus was a willing participant in God's plan for our salvation. Jesus loves me, this I know. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Jesus loves me. 
You know, the world has a lot to say about love these days. The world has a lot to say about what it means to love others these days. And I would suggest to you this morning that if Jesus loves me and if the greatest expression of his love is the fact that he died for me, then that ought to teach me some things about the way I ought to love others. What do you think? That ought to teach me some things about how I ought to express love to others. Think about this. Five truths about genuine love that need to be in our minds. In the first place, love is a choice. It is a decision that we make. It's not just something that you fall into and fall out of and you have no control over it. We choose who and what we love. We decide with our own volition where our passions and energies are going to be expended. We do. Love is a choice and Jesus chose to love you. Second, love is selfless. It's not about what's in it for me. It's about what's best for someone else, what's best for the object of my love. That's what love is. It's selfless. When Jesus stretched out his arms upon that cross and when he allowed those Roman soldiers to drive the nails through his hands and his feet, he was selflessly thinking about you and me. Not only is love selfless, love seeks what's best for its object. And sometimes every parent knows what's best for our kids is not necessarily what makes them happy right now. What's best for our kids is not necessarily what's going to bring a smile to their face in the near term. Love seeks what's best for its object. When Jesus died for you and me, he was doing what was best for us. Not what was pleasant, not what was easy, but what was best. And that's what love does. And if I'm going to treat other people in loving ways, I've got to think about not just what's good for them right now, but what's good for them in the long run. Love seeks what's best. What do I learn about love from the cross? Love must be expressed to do any good. We have warm feelings toward others. We have kind intentions about others. But if there's no expression of that in words or actions, it's useless. Even though I have the best intentions, even though I have the best ideas, love must be expressed to truly be love. Jesus loved us before the foundation of the world. Jesus cared about us and came to this world to redeem us, but his love still had to be expressed at the cross, did it not? Jesus loves you. And then this, love must understand sin or else God's love will become a license to sin. If love doesn't understand sin and how heinous and opposite it is to God and his very nature and his very character, if love doesn't understand that, then all of a sudden God's love starts to become a license to sin. And the Bible is full of warnings about people who turn the grace of God into lewdness. Jude verses 3 and 4, for example. People who make grace into liberty and license to do things that are ungodly and sinful. Jesus loves me. He wants what's best for me. And the cross proves that I need to have the same concept and understanding of sin that God does if I'm going to act in loving ways toward God and toward others. Jesus loves me. The average congregation knows 150 to 200 songs. I don't know how many songs the cross would know, but I do know this. 
I do know that there are some truths in the songs we sing that find their very best expression in the cross. And we need to think as the people of God more deeply about what was accomplished for us 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. Jesus loves you, and he wants nothing more than for you to come to him in submissive faith and obedience and to put him on in baptism this morning. Maybe you're ready to make that commitment. Maybe you're ready to take that step. If so, there's no better time, there's no better place than right here and right now. Put your Lord on, find salvation in his blood, and find the joy and peace that comes from following him. If you have a need this morning, if you want to make that known publicly, why don't you come forward while together we stand and while we sing. Yeah.